Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Hello, everybody. Charles Eisenstein once again here, this time joined by Dr. Nathan Riley, who I've just gotten to know um, on our online community, the one that I host with my fabulous former wife, Patsy. Um, and yeah, Nathan is is one of a um, of, of a few uh, doctors and scientists who are in the community, uh, and I, I really value them for their and especially Nathan for for his insider perspective, you know that that allows him to see both the the strengths of the system that I'm so often uh, tempted to criticize, but also its weaknesses in a way that's really firsthand. Uh, so Nathan is um, a medical doctor, an OBGYN actually, also has a specialty in palliative care, hospice, that kind of stuff. So um, hi, Nathan. Well, welcome <laughs> on to our program. Hi, Charles. Thank you so much um, for having me. Yeah. So, um, okay. So let me know if this is too sensitive to start out with, but one reason that I really value being connected to to people who are, you know, inside the system, or at least their credentials suggest that they are, and especially people in clinical practice, mm. is that there's so much con- contradictory information out there. Yeah. You know, if I go on to, to Mercola.com, you know, there's all kinds, or even into some of the conspiracy corners of the internet, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff about how there's enormous numbers of people are getting harmed by vaccines, and, and it's doing this, that, and the other thing to people, and and then, you know, if I tune in to mainstream sources, it's like, you know, adverse events are very rare and they're exaggerated. Well, you're somebody who's actually been in clinical practice. Um, and you're, I know that you're in contact with a lot of midwives, people who are working firsthand, especially with women. So yeah, what's the uh, landscape look like from where you are? <sighs> Maybe we went right into the into the big one, huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, first off, Charles, I, I also want to take a moment to acknowledge um, how important your presence is in the world, but also that if you were to stop working altogether, if you were just to stop writing and disappear into the woods, into the Smokies or something, I think you've left such an, imp- an impression on the planet through your work already that it already kind of sets the framework for where I think we all probably would like to go. And I just want to acknowledge and honor you for the work that you've done. Um, And it is a real gift to be here with you chatting, really is. Well, thank you. Uh, I was going to say, don't tempt me. (laughs) Uh, But it's interesting that you say that because I've, um, as you probably know, in the last couple of years, I've been, you know, deeply questioning 
what I do and the way I do it. And mm-hmm. um, I had a really big medicine journey uh, a week ago. That's just like totally reshuffled the deck mm. um, and oriented me a lot, a lot more toward joy and pleasure in life. Sure. Um, but paradoxically, it's also maybe more productive. So, but we could have a whole other conversation about that. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and actually my wife and I just had a really hard conversation last night where we realized there is so much division in the language that we use on a daily basis. Even people who are conscientious of it, there's mm-hmm. a lot of negativity in that in, in the space. And I mean, like the space, the bigger space. Um, and so I actually very much resonate with what you just said, because um, she and I both sort of have had to unsubscribe from a lot of conversations around hard things because it's always about like who's right and who's wrong like you have to be on a side and I consider myself um, a recovering doctor (laughs) Mm. and um, yeah you know I do have those credentials I went to uh, medical school at Temple University and uh, then I did my residency training at Kaiser in LA um, in OBGYN and then I went to UC San Diego um, for a bit of a healing year as a fellow in hospice and palliative medicine and I've been doing all those things um, until very recently, where I um, had to sort of was forced to step out of the system entirely for reasons I'm sure we'll get into. But um, I'm a very deeply thoughtful person about the state of the world and sort of my my place in it. And I think that that um, notion is sort of challenged for the reasons that you just mentioned. Um, as a physician, I have this responsibility to speak, you know, quote the truth and to only provide the facts. You know, I'm using air quotes, you know, here on camera. Because th- those things are a bit nebulous, right? There, you, you know, to I, my my focus is in birth and death. Well, how do you apply in, an observational data set to caring for somebody through one of those experiences, or for that matter, how do you guide an entire population, which is anything but homogeneous, towards you know the quote truth or or whatever? And and that's what you know. I think years and years ago, physicians were sort of held in a state of reverence because they. They brought to the conversation the essence of of the scientific process, which is really an exploration of truth, meaning I don't know what the answer is, mm-hmm. um, but I would love to ask questions and get to know more. Like that's, that's what drives you into this field. You know, at, at the age of 18, you're like, you got to choose a field. And in my experience, at this point in my life, I'm in my late 30s. I'm looking back and I'm like, well, you know, that was weird. Like that whole thing was weird. All that education. I think it was, um, I heard in a recent podcast, uh, Kyle Kingsbury podcast where he was interviewing Tom Cowan and, and uh, they were talking about Yvonne Illich and I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, Ivan yeah, Illich, he's yeah. a big influence on me actually. Yeah. 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 Me too. Me too. I remember reading the, um, an essay of his to hell with good intentions back when I was in college uh-huh. and I was getting this nonprofit going this like international NGO in Malawi and which is like a little sliver of a country in East Africa that is probably one of the most highly concentrated of destitutely poor people also happens to be one of the happiest warmest places I've ever been on earth but I'll save that for another conversation but when I was um, listening to this podcast with Kyle and Tom uh, Tom Cowan he's another MD that's very open-minded and thoughtful about some of these things they brought up this idea of like the the schooling of of the masses right and and when i think back to my uh to my sort of pedigree like where i came from like i've been studying my butt off my entire life 
earning the privilege of studying more mm -hmm. and earning uh, uh, this privilege of th this sort of narrowing of the types of people that I'm going to interact with on a daily basis. So much so that many physicians only interact with other physicians or nurses or nurse practitioners or whoever that work in that system. So you become very enclosed within this bubble and all of you, all of the people that you're looking at in your circle as a professional, at least they're all, um, they've all been rewarded for staying in the lines, you know? So the, the most prestigiously trained physician at Harvard or Oxford or whatever, like whatever the top university is, um, they've been rewarded for not really being critical thinkers. They've been rewarded for, for following the path that is ahead of them, right? Which is what is the answer to the test on that multiple choice test? What was the right answer? And we've all taken billions of, of questions on these tests. And so you're, you're sort of rewarded for having the right answer based on what the system believes is the right answer at that time. So you can see how this exploration of truth, which is what science really is, you can see how that is somewhat degraded with a misaligned incentive structure in our education system of doctors. You know, And I think right. doctors should be highly educated. Like you should go to school for years because you might kill somebody on the operating room table if you don't know what blood vessel that is or if that's, if that's a lymph structure, a vein, an artery, whatever. If that's just connective tissue, you need to know, right? So there is a bit of knowing, but then also as a physician, it's important that we're able to step back and look at everything. So to answer your question, I don't have the answer about where we're at, but I, I do see us kind of slipping into this space where we don't have the answers and, and we're not okay with that. It's very uncomfortable to just be so unsure when particularly physicians and other medical scientists have, have been sort of trained and, and habituated to pretending like they have the answer. I even remember in residency being told like, like you just come up with an answer on the spot. I would just say six. I would just say six <laughs> because you need to sort of pretend like you have an answer prepared for anything that comes under the sun. And they call it pimping in medical school where the doctor, the supervising doc will turn to you and say, uh, Nathan, uh, what, you know, what's the answer to this question? And if you don't have an answer, it means you didn't study hard enough and you look like a fool in front of everybody. And even though most of your colleagues didn't have the answer, you know what I mean? So in the current state of, of health and vitality and well-being uh, is particularly in our country, but I think this is a worldwide phenomenon. I, I think that we're in a place of unknown and I find that comforting. I find that as an opportunity to ask questions, but right now we're, we're being punished for asking questions um, and being punished for not having the answer. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know if that scratches the surface. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, a lot, it, it brings up a lot of interesting ideas, things that we could talk about. Like, I mean, for one thing, this whole apparatus that uh, rewards you coming up with the right answer. You could say that there's an underlying ideology that says that's good because yeah. the answers that you're being asked to produce are the truth mm. because medical science and science in general is converging on yeah. the truth. This is what human progress is. That is we, the progress. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We, we leave behind the world of ritual and superstition mm. and we become more and more advanced and our beliefs are closer and closer to the objective truth. And uh, those mm. who are most highly trained in this process are the doctors and scientists. And so they're the closest to the truth. And so we need to trust, put, put our lives in their hands and we'll be well taken care of. That's kind of this ideology that was pretty much unquestionable 
yeah. when I was a kid, except for people like Ivan Illich, who identified medicine and education as the two key authoritarian structures of our society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very prescient, mm-hmm. I thought. Yeah. But, um, you know, this was an unquestioned ideology in the 1970s because it looked like it was working. It looked like we were conquering all disease and getting healthier right. and healthier and happier and happier and longer lifespan, et cetera. Yeah. Longer lifespan. Yeah. But now, um, <laughs> at least two years ago, I would have said that this faith is really breaking down because people were flocking to alternative medicine and rejecting, or at least it seemed to me, uh, some of the dogma of biomedicine you know, scientific yeah. medicine, but yeah. then COVID came and uh, generally speaking, the whole population defaulted back to a very narrow orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I think that, you know, when I use the term, the system, I, I want people to understand what I'm talking about is the conventional medical model that you're describing, where if you get sick, if you get a tummy ache, if you get whatever, you go to the hospital or the clinic and you try to get that problem fixed. And I, I'm with you. I mean, I, up until a couple of years ago, I, even when I was in medical school, it was like, but what about all the other stuff, you know? And um, if you looked outside of your textbooks, you would see all these other people are doing these great healing things, these modalities around the world. And we weren't learning any of that in medical school, medical school. and that's okay. There's a, there's a philosophy of the allopathic model, which by the way, just means like the Western medical thing. It's not really Western, but it is it is sort of this, um, this emerging, uh, maybe over the past couple hundred years, this emergent philosophy of the human body as the sum of parts. And I think what's lacking when we reduce it to that is when you try to quantify everything, when you try to measure everything, you lose, you lose out on the quality, right? And I, I know that you've written qu- quite a bit about this. Um, what, I'm, what I'm really getting at, and this is a bit of a... Um, and uh, sort of like a, a common thing I've heard my, my friend and, and mentor, Paul Check say, um, like, if, if I asked you, Charles, how much do you love Stella or your children? Like, you can't measure that, right? There's not Six, a number. Six, seven, <laughs> 11. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, and some others are like ecstasy. I can't, I can't measure ecstasy, but we've all experienced that ecstatic joy, the, the relief that we are alive and we are whole. Um, how about like consciousness? And so you cut into the brain, you don't find consciousness. Someday we will be able to quantify ecstasy based <laughs> on, you know, a, a electrochemical state of the brain. I mean, this, this is, yeah. I, I mean, there, this is part of the ideology, you know, like, yeah, and, and it's and, an important indeed, part. Neuroscience has made some progress in characterizing what we would call subjective states. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. to say that this will someday capture all of what or that it even could capture all of what is a subjective state yeah that is an ideology it is you could believe it but it's a metaphysical belief it is yeah and and every single human being that you come into contact even if they are the most atheistic right and and i'm and i mean non-religious human being who wakes up every single morning knows that there are these unmeasurable facets of, of being a conscious human being, including the doctors, the nurses, and all the people within the system. 
but the system and people within the system, when they're operating within that framework, they, they tend to forget that. They act as if, if that isn't so, but they know it is. And so what has emerged, I think, as a result of that ideology is that we value productivity and revenue in all facets of our society, but, but Illich was onto this earlier than most. It's, it's, it's even more so predominant and perhaps even damaging within the healthcare system, because what happens is we value productivity and revenue over outcomes and connection. Yeah, and that doesn't mean that as individuals, like what doctors care about is productivity and revenue. It's, it's like a systemic tilt. Exactly, exactly. Right? So, so through cognitive dissonance, all of these people who are doing these jobs, they know that there's more to it, but this is the system and this is how we have to work in the system because that's how we've been told it's done. Uh, so what, what happened to you? Um, like <laughs> you were in the system and you just mentioned that you are recently fledged out of the system. Um, is there any, any story you want to tell us about that or any, uh, um, not, you don't have to, I'm just, well, based on the, uh, documents that I signed, I really, I really can't say anything specifically, but you know, as you and I were talking before we started recording, um, I don't know if there's like, I don't, I, so I was fired. I was fired from my job recently and it was a job that I wasn't going to be able to hold long anyways, because I was slowly finding myself out of the system, whether I wanted to or not. It was sort of like my soul wasn't really being guided along the path that the system really wanted me to be on, um, especially as a healer myself. And so, um, I was fired for something related to COVID. I don't even need to go into that, but I don't even have bad feelings about the company for firing me. I actually totally understand. <laughs> mm -hmm. I totally get it. And I mean, of course, it's a little bit of an, an emotional roller coaster to have that security blanket torn away because the golden handcuffs of being a highly paid physician are so tightly bound. Mm -hmm. I mean, even where I trained at Kaiser, those physicians were making in the hundreds of thousands. And they were, many of them were miserable, but the benefits and the, the sort of, um, pension at the end of the the rainbow was was going to be so rich that they just couldn't break free. And th this is not a criticism. This is a I'm compassionate. I'm trying to be compassionate and understanding of how this model works. Like I just didn't fit in there. Hmm. So what's special about me? I, I actually don't think there's anything special about me. I actually think that there are any doctor or nurse you've ever met actually feels this way. What we've been talking about. They know that there's more to caring for people than these quantifiable metrics like blood pressure, like whatever your pain rating is on a scale of one to 10 or blood loss or whatever. Um, so I don't think I'm special at all. I, I actually think that I've, I've just struggled with that cognitive dissonance for so long that I realized it was actually becoming pathologic to my own health mm -hmm. to not be, to not be doing the work that I feel, um, to, to not being do to not to not be doing work that I I felt I could really invest myself into, as mm -hmm. a father, as a man, as a as a human, as a healer. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting that your specialties are birth and death. <laughs> Back when I was just formulating my basic ideas, uh, formulating the ascent of humanity, you know, it came actually in large part from birth and death, from you know, and when. when um, our first son was when, when Patsy was pregnant with Jimmy, our eldest, 
you know, everybody sent me books, like my mother, you know, what to expect when you're expecting, like all these books, mm. you know. And I bought some books myself. And one of them I bought was called uh, Natural Childbirth, the Bradley Way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was about the what's called the Bradley Method. Mm-hmm. And what impressed me about that book was his humility. He didn't refer to himself as delivering babies, but simply catching mm-hmm. babies mm-hmm. because he trusted in the biological wisdom of the mother. And basically what I got from that book was pretty much every single thing about modern birthing practices is wrong <laughs> from the environment that the woman is put in to the position, even that she's yeah. put into the drugs to the, like the whole thing mm-hmm. from top to bottom. And I then learned pretty much the same thing about death, the dying process. So I'm like birth, death, and everything in between. So, <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, it's not because OBGYNs and, and nurse midwives and, and birthing centers and hospitals are evil and want to impose patriarchal domination and on, onto mothers and make them suffer. Um, everything that is done has like a systemic logic. Mm-hmm. I was recently, we had some house guests from Brazil and the woman had given birth to five children by C-section, which was in the hospital in Brazil routine. Mm-hmm. Like the default was cesarean section. Right. And they would schedule it and everything like, like vaginal births basically only happened by mistake. Mm-hmm. And this was considered advanced and it wasn't just their imagination. They have statistics, you know, like vaginal birth, this could happen, that could happen. But a C-section is, it's like all the variables are under control, you know? And, and so there is a certain logic to it. So maybe uh, you can take this any way you want, but, mm-hmm. but maybe one way is like, how have you negotiated that logic? And to the extent that you've stepped out of it, how have you stepped out of it? And, and what, what has been your journey? And, and even like, as a man, what brought you to birth as a specialty? Uh, you know, I, that's probably the most common question people ask me, like, why as a man, would you want to do this thing? And um, I don't I really have a good answer for that, except that when you're when you're present with birth, you notice something magical happening. Oh my God, the best four moments of my life mm. were witnessing the birth of my four yeah, children yeah. by far. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's an, un, it's an in, intangible, uh, talk about ecstasy, right? Um, there, is, there is something so sacred and magical about seeing the birth of a baby. So that's probably where it started for me. I think then, you know, with residency training, you're doing like 100 hour weeks, right? You're, you're just seeing birth all day long. You don't see a lot of death. You see a lot of birth and you do a lot of surgery. And, um, as an OBGYN, you're also doing a lot of GYN surgery. I mean, like you're, you're doing all kinds of things, but what brought me into it was actually being present for a birth, you know, and you see a couple births as a med student and, and there's a, a magic to that. But what's interesting about birth and death, going back to earlier in our conversation is that neither of these two experiences fits neatly into this Cartesian reductionistic model of health. Right. And, and, and what, what I've really so much appreciated about your work is that it is like the central thesis is that our tendency to want to try to control everything 
is, is leading us down a path that, that isn't sustainable. Right. Mm -hmm. So even in a C-section to think you can control everything is, is not really, it's not really adequate, but even less so in vaginal birth, especially in a home environment, because who knows what supplies we have or whatever else. Um, but I, but I, I would encourage anybody to think about the sacred nature of these two things. Do they belong in this hospitalized over pathologized system? I would argue that they don't, but that's not to say that we shouldn't have these tools available to us in order to have you know, avert some catastrophe. Like if you're 25, dying is a lot different from a 95 year old man who gets pneumonia and is like, thank goodness, I'm not going to be around for the next Christmas. My own grandfather died at age hundred. He had been praying for five years to his God that he wouldn't see another Christmas. Wow. And he made it 95, 96, 97. It was like, grandpa's still here. Um, so he died last year. It wasn't from COVID but he did die in isolation because people were trying to keep him safe. Wow. And, and that's a whole separate podcast, Charles, that, that is a big part of why I had to get out of hospice care because I realized that this same control we try to exert over birth is being exerted over death. And you could talk about ventilators. You could talk about whatever. And in this, in the system, there are certain things we can control. Like Charles, if you got a really bad blood infection and you had a whole bunch of bacteria coursing through you, of course you would come and we would treat you with antibiotics and keep you alive because you're not, it's probably not your time to go. Um, but to try to control every aspect of birth and death, it, it misses the whole point. So those are the two specialties in which we can't really fit it into the model. And I would also encourage everybody to think about when we're going through birth and we're going through death, ask any woman what that experience was like, was like for them. And it is a completely psychedelic experience. And I don't mean that they took a big dose of mushrooms. That's one way to reach an altered state. Um, but if you think about the, the, the Greek roots of, of psychedelic, psyche means soul, and delune means to make visible. So you're, you're actually being confronted with your soul, your etheric body, your, the subtle bodies are becoming clear. And that's why if you sit there and you're patient with birth and with death, something incredible happens. And it's the most, it's the most beingness that you might ever feel as a birthing person, as a partner to a birthing person, seeing your son or daughter emerge after you've felt them kicking for nine or 10 months. There's something really important there. And, and likewise, we don't really know what happens when you die. There is all this, you know, conjecture around the pineal gland releasing DMT and all this cool stuff. And I find that stuff fascinating. I mean, I, I am actually very, very much into the psychedelic research and how it could be useful as a, as a treatment for the existential distress and pain of dying because we don't see a lot of death. And similarly, we don't see a lot of birth until it happens. And it's like, holy smokes. Um, but I know that you, you've talked with Zach Bush before. He's uh, sort of a mentor of mine from afar. He talks a lot about his experience in the ICU and talking to people with near-death experience. And they all describe a very similar thing, which is you become, there's this oneness, there's this unity, there's this wholeness and warmth. And when you bring them back, sometimes they're actually a little pissed off. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, they're 92 or 95 or whatever, and you brought them back to life. And I, again, I'm using air quotes because you bring them back into their physical body and you, you sort of harness their, their spirit back into this earthly plane and say, we're not ready to let you go yet. 
And they'll tell you it was like a full blown when you hear them describe it. And then you talk to somebody who just did an ayahuasca journey. It's a very similar experience. So there's something important and interesting there, but it is not something that can be quantified. It is an infallibility to both birth and death that is missed in our metrics. It's missed in all the data that you suggested about Brazil. And so while there are good reasons for us to have allopathic doctors on hand to do a C-section in 30 seconds for a really bad abruption or something, and the baby's heart rate's down, we got to get this otherwise totally healthy baby out of there. There's good reason to have that. But that needs to be our, our backup. Like that's in my toolkit. It doesn't, that's not how we lead with that. Right. So, but, but that, you know, there's kind of a slippery slope there because mm-hmm. if you say, okay, I want to have that backup. Well, then you're not probably going to be able to give birth at home. You know, you're going to have to be near, near a facility where that kind of equipment and expertise is available. So at some point, I think that birthing women have to choose mm-hmm. like b- between different priorities. You know, is my priority to maximize safety and minimize the chance of a stillbirth or of me dying? Or is it to give birth in a way that's beautiful to me? Yeah. Well, I think that that's why protocols don't work all that well, you know, and and in my practice, it starts really with storytelling. It starts with like, who are you? What are your values? And Mm. where are you going in life? And a good friend of mine, Maren Green, she's a, um, she's a CPM, but she's really a, a, a midwife that does things in, in the most magical way that I've, I've ever seen. She and I have talked about this and, um, and she and I both agree, and this is super controversial, so earmuffs if you don't like controversy, but the, the nature of giving birth is in and, of, in and of itself carries inherent risks. And sometimes babies die. Sometimes mothers die. Fortunately, it's not very, very often. Um, if you were to look at the mammalian kingdom, sometimes things don't go right because the uteroplacental unit is just not functioning well, or the baby's just not fit for the, the act of passing through this very stressful, you know, very, very enclosed space emerging into the, into the world. Um, but as a society, when we, when we use the word safety, we think about trying to minimize every bad outcome, the, the likelihood of a bad outcome to zero. And we know that that's not possible. It's sort of like saying we're going to only grow um, this particular crop, right? And we want to make sure that, the, that this field only produces corn. So we wipe out everything else without realizing the downstream consequences of that. So what this, how this is manifested in a protocolized birthing system in the hospital is without having a conversation with what's important to the mom and f- what she wants for her baby or the partner wants for, for them or whatever, we just kind of pop them into this system whereby we're going to minimize the likelihood of something bad happening, even if that's something bad happening, similar to like pneumonia in a hundred year old man, even if that may not necessarily be in line with who they are. So a, a, a common example is, let's say that a woman is giving birth in a hospital and the doctor runs in, this is the common scenario and says, you know what, I think your baby's having some sort of distress. I wanna to try to do a C-section within the next 30 minutes. Um, and they're like, well, you know, I. I'm not so sure. And they say, well, you don't want your baby to die, right? So let's go do the C-section. That type of language doesn't really, doesn't really convey much. It's not really a dialogue. It's, it's more like, um, I've decided that this is what we need to do because society has, has kind of adopted the notion that we can only accept good outcomes based on our metrics. Mm -hmm. And so I had one patient one time who refused the C-section and her baby died. 
but for her, that was okay. And I know that that's hard for everybody to hear, but if for her, it was dystopic. And I would say it's dystopic that you know, 90% of kids are coming out through the abdomen in some parts of the world. It's dystopic that we're going to make an incision and remove the baby. That wasn't really, it for some reason, didn't resonate with that, that person. And we have to take a step back and hold space for that. But how do we provide that level of safety, that level of support, that safety net that many women would fall back on if we promote home birth? Um, and I don't know, but we do have a lot of data that suggests that most home births actually go better physiologically than they do in the hospital for all the reasons you mentioned, all the beeps and all the interruptions and all of the, the stressors on a woman. And we know, we know that, that stress, that, that high cortisol levels, we know all of that stuff disrupts physiology. Why wouldn't it likewise yeah. compromise the physiologic nature of birth? Bradley said something about, I think he was one who pointed out that if an animal like a uh, mother cat or somebody uh, is feels uncomfortable, mm -hmm. feels like in, in danger, then the birth process halts. She goes right. and finds a more safe nest and then it restarts. Right. So if you put a woman in a situation where she's not comfortable, yeah. where she's feeling a little unsafe, then yeah, like, like the, these hormonal processes that create childbirth, they, they get interrupted. And it's not only like, okay, this hospital room and this impersonal setting and these beeps and everything. It's also the entire narration of what mm -hmm. birth is in mm -hmm. our culture mm -hmm. that first and foremost names it as a medical condition. And like when Stella was pregnant, like well-meaning friends kept warning her of all of the bad things that could happen. Right. Like it was, she was being primed for fear. Mm -hmm. And so part of this is, is even more broadly, it's a distrust in our bodies that's right. In, in biology itself, in the intelligence of nature, which right. is part of the ideology that says that human progress needs to impose our order onto a world that is fundamentally random. Right. But like there's a, a really deep uh, current that guides our conventional birth system. And to step out of it is mm. a pretty audacious mm. countercultural step. Um, yeah. 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 So I guess, I guess then preceding the transition back to the traditional midwifery model of care in the home, really it's a societal problem. Again, that's leaking into it's, it's being, it's sort of leaching into these other systems that are not governed adequately as pathology, right? There's these uncontrollable unknown variables that pop up and, and, and I, and I do think that changing the story of how birth is happening in most parts of the world requires us to change the story as, as to how we actually co-create with, with our biosphere, with, with the ecology of our surroundings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'm, I'm going to ask you a point blank question that you're, you can feel free not to answer. Um, this, um, the stuff that I've been hearing about, uh, it's totally change of subject, but that's okay. Uh, women after getting jabbed, having mm -hmm. menstrual irregularities and reproductive system problems, which is, you know, widely debunked in, in the media, like just without judging the media, like in your personal firsthand, you and the midwives you work with, is there anything unusual happening or not? Yes. 
Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is it is it like how how no, how striking is it? Is it like alarming or just kind of concerning or borderline? Six. Or? Six. <laughs> Six. <laughs> um, I. I don't think we really know. I mean, again, it's uh, when I first started hearing from people, I was actually hearing from people who were in proximity to others who were vaccinated and they themselves mm -hmm. were, were a little resistant or apprehensive mm -hmm. um, for, I think for very good reason. Um, I think what's, what I, the accounts I've been hearing are there's some bleeding disorders. We know that there's some clotting issues in some people, there's bleeding issues in other people. I even remember reading recently that, um, one hypothesis is that something about this gene therapy in the mRNA vaccines actually causes a, a transient boost in estrogen. So, you know, even if you're on hormonal contraception, people are getting pregnant on, you know, it's an unintended pregnancy because of this boost in estrogen that seems to overwhelm the contraception that they're on or, or whatever. Right. Um, but I mean, all of this is sort of hearsay. I think that more importantly, I, I mean, I think deep down what I know to be true is that the burden of proof lies in those who wish to deviate from, from natural physiology, right? Or, or nature as a whole. So one problem with this, this jab is that, that really kind of put me on my heels was that before we even had preliminary data in pregnant women, as you know, most medical studies are not done in pregnant women for ethical considerations or recruitment issues or whatever. Um, but ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which is the college that oversees the predominantly oversees guidelines that helps guide the OBGYN practices around our country. And every developed nation has their own version of this, but everybody basically worldwide was saying, yep, this is probably safe in pregnant women. And um, I've used this metaphor before, but it's, it's like, <laughs> we've been, we've been shaming women. And, and this is part of that distrust that women have in their bodies. Like you don't know your body. Let, let us experts take care of that. You know, don't listen to your intuition. Don't, don't just, you don't, you don't get it. Just come to the hospital and we'll take care of everything. Um, we've been shaming women for having a glass of wine in pregnancy or for having an orgasm in pregnancy, you know, or using a vibrator in pregnancy. I mean, like all of these things are these, these little things that, that, you know, that doctors sometimes say, and it's, it, and now suddenly we're, we're saying, Hey, this biological agent that we're going to inject in you is probably safe to you in your fetus. Um, I can't, I can't understand that. Uh, so, so really we actually are still lacking quite a bit of data as to the safety of these vaccines in women of reproductive age, but especially in, in women who are pregnant or are trying to conceive. So, um, I mean, there's all these little components, proprietary agents that are included in new devices like this. And, you know, I've heard of like graphene and I've heard of, you know, these different shedding theories based on the fact that this is a nucleic acid packaged up and injected in. And then there's these nanoparticulate, you know, uh, whatever they call them, lipid nanoparticles and all this other stuff that we don't really, we don't really know, but is something is happening. And, and it, I don't know if it's, if it's related to, you know, maybe the fear around it and being in proximity to other people, but, but plenty of women, and I'm saying plenty, Charles, this is not like I've gotten an occasional email, tons, stop counting <laughs> of people who are saying, Hey, I, I had this problem or my sister had this problem or my mom had this problem and they haven't had bleeding for years. Like my sister gave me permission to share this, but she's had a Mirena IUD, which is a hormonal progestin containing IUD that goes in the uterus. And it's pretty damn effective at 
keeping you from getting pregnant. A vast, um, well, most people, I'll say most women will become amenorrheic, meaning they don't have any monthly bleeds after about two years of use. Well, my sisters had this in there for like six or seven years and she started bleeding suddenly when they were requiring this jab at her school and she was in close proximity to all these other people and she didn't receive the vaccine, but she was like, brother, you're not going to believe this <laughs> because she, like me, I mean, we, we like to stand up on the fence and kind of try to see both sides of the argument, but gosh, that's a pretty compelling thing. If you haven't had any bleeding and suddenly now you're bleeding despite having an IED in place. And maybe it's from the boost of estrogen, which could be benign, maybe not. I mean, mm -hmm. so right. I know that's a long winded answer, but, um, I think one major criticism I have, and actually a lot of people speaking out to the FDA right now, including physicians, medical scientists from, from programs like MIT, et cetera, they're, they're struggling with the fact that while we have been rolling this, this thing out, and maybe if, if COVID is as serious as, as people say and think it is, perhaps we should have some means of mitigating spread across the population, but why haven't we been collecting huge data sets, you know, in order to determine, Hey, how, not only efficacious is this, but also how dangerous is this? I mean, that's what we do with every other thing. I, I just don't know how this somehow is an exception. Mm -hmm. um, and I think many women are actually um, suffering the, the brunt of consequences of that lack of foresight. Mm -hmm. You know, one, one interesting thing about our current times is that regardless of what your position is on vaccines and on COVID and on public health policy and so on and so forth, like medicine has become mm -hmm. like the governing public issue. <laughs> um, yeah, medicine has become not only, I mean, for many people, at least like the major public issue, the main public issue, but also like the, the main governing principle of a society. Like it's like the CDC has become the fourth branch of government and all of our, you know, constitutional freedoms could now be prefaced with, unless the medical authorities say otherwise, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of assembly, the freedom of worship, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. this is like, the, it's kind of like the medicalization of life where yeah. every act becomes a medical decision therefore subject to medical authority. And I think that, that, like you were saying earlier, there are definitely situations in which I would gladly hand over, hand over my body to mm -hmm. a doctor. Like if I were in a, a severe car accident, my, my personal rule is if it's gonna kill me in 24 hours or less, I'll go to the hospital. <laughs> That's a good rule. <laughs> I'm gonna steal that one, yeah. Cause, cause you know, like, Modern medicine is capable of incredible, incredible miracles. Absolutely. Like, you know, acute sepsis or, or, you know, burns over 90% of your body or like, I mean, it's incredible what, what they can do for chronic disease, mm. for just maintaining basic health, mm. not so much. Right. Yeah. And that's not what the system was, it wasn't designed to do. We weren't trained to do that. So we have to like yeah. know our limitations and yeah, I, I totally agree. I totally but this agree. like whole medicalization of life mm. uh, and medicalization of, of society where we have a new God that we worship mm -hmm. medical safety. Like, do you have any, any, any thoughts about that? Oh man. So many thoughts about that. Yeah. It's, um, 
I mean, I gosh, we could go so many different directions with that. I mean, obviously that's a big part of why I had to step out of the system because I found that I wasn't really doing much good for people unless there was an emergency. And I mean, you know, another one of those great emergencies, like going back into birth is that woman who's having the heavy, you know, the horrible bleeding and she's in labor and the baby's heart rate is down. Like we know that that's a baby who's going to be, um, who's not getting enough oxygen. So we have to do the emergency. The last, very last surgery I did before I stepped away from hospital-based OBGYN care, I was, um, caring. I was a hospitalist, meaning I'm in the hospital at all times and the, their primary OB is at home. And if they need the primary OB to come in for some reason, they call them. Well, in an emergency, they're not going to get there in time. So they call me because I'm sleeping in the call room down the hall. And so they call me in obvious abruption. We rush her back to the OR. And by the time, from the time that my knife touched her belly to the time that the baby was out, it was about 37 seconds which is pretty, you could think about that. I mean, this is a major, this is one of the most dangerous surgeries. We happen to be very good at it because we do too many of them, but it's one of the most dangerous surgeries on the plant, you know, on the block. And it took 37 seconds and mom and baby were totally fine afterwards. Um, if you take a step back and look then at the factors that contribute to pregnancy complications or, you know, things like gestational diabetes or hypertensive diseases, you know, in pregnancy and whatnot, we in our clinics, we don't even have the tools or the time to really provide people with the knowledge or the, the sort of skill set to take care of themselves at home. And because we've told people, hey, don't trust your body, just come to me, even though we don't really have the tools to actually keep them from coming back, um, it, it ends up being a bit of a catch-22. So we've created a need for ourselves and we're overworked. And we know that people need other tools, but people have been trained to think that the doctor has all the answers. So I think that the biggest, um, the biggest takeaway from what you said, I mean, again, there's a lot. The biggest takeaway is that we don't have a system that really helps people stay out of the system. And I think a lot mm -hmm. of people see that as a bit of a, it's like conspiratorial, right? Like they just want you to be sick. So you keep coming back. Well, I don't believe that. Like, I actually don't think any doctor out there is like, oh man, I would have fixed that, but like they're going to come <laughs> yeah. back and I'm going to get to do it again. Like it doesn't, it's not really like that. I've got, I have most of my friends are in medicine and not a single one would be boasting about keeping their patients sick so that they can make more money off of them next year. You know, <laughs> not, not full of evil, greedy ghouls. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Right. Right. We're not out there scrounging for every last dollar from the public. Um, yeah. So it's, it, it's, it's such a complicated question you just posed that I don't even really know where to start, except that we need to start really focusing on keeping people healthy, like for the simple fact that our healthcare system is hemorrhaging money. Um, and that money is not going to the doctors and the nurses, that money is going elsewhere. And, right. and so, so even, even if they were motivated by personal <laughs> greed, they're not doing a very good job of it. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. like this is a really crappy design doctors if this was your plan, because you're right. not seeing any of that money. People think doctors are like rolling in dough and some doctors are, but most are like paying off a half a million dollars in medical school debt still yeah. 25 years after they've exited their training. So um I want to pick up on, unless you, unless you no, have something burning, no, I want, no, I want no. to pick up on what you were it. saying about, you, you expressed it very pithily that uh, the system isn't very good at keeping people out of the system. It, it, it brought up in me the, um, the back to COVID and how, you know, some over 90% of COVID deaths are in people who have comorbidities. Mm. So basically if you have diabetes, if you have, 
some kind of chronic disease, if you're obese, et cetera, et cetera, then you're a lot more likely to die of COVID. Yet that's like those comorbidities, those, those underlying conditions are kind of taken for granted. Rationally speaking, um, another public health response to COVID would have been, oh my God, people are dying of comorbidities. Let's do something about that. Mm -hmm. And, and if the system mobilized to the extent that it is mobilized to stop a virus, if it mobilized to address these other chronic health conditions, then like that would have been a very, very different picture. Oh yeah. But, but as you were saying, medicine doesn't really know what to do about those things, at least right. medicine as it is currently constituted and taught in medical school. Now, it's not that these are completely mystifying incurable conditions, because I know a lot of people in what are called alternative health modalities that can totally handle these things, that routinely can reverse metabolic syndrome and all kinds of other things. Like It's not that, that we're helpless Mm -hmm. against these random conditions that just happen to a certain percentage of people statistically. Right. Like, I mean, I have some, some, some theories about, it's not just that, you know, it's not profitable to treat them, although there are systemic incentives along those lines. Like if you want to, I mean, where, you know, how does medicine get funded? Right. You know, it's right. the things that will end up being patentable and profitable that get funded right. the most. Right. So there are like systemic tilts toward the kind of medicine that we see today, but it's also ideological. It's, it, it, it goes a lot deeper. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in your essay, The Coronation, which I'm sure people listening to have uh, at least heard about it, <laughs> it was a brilliant essay. And you said something really important there, which is that when we see this foreign invader, the COVID, this creepy crawly thing that's out to get us, it's easy for us to turn our missiles, our, our ammunition all of our tools, this trillion dollar system on the bad guy, the bad guys coming in, bacteria, virus, fungi, um, whatever, um, car accidents, you know, like the car hit you, we're going to save you by closing up the blood vessels, right? Because that outside thing hurts you. We're good at that. We're good at responding. That's reactive medicine. That's where the emergency measures that you, you know, you spoke so eloquently about, like, that's why we need the healthcare system. The problem with these chronic conditions, and this is also, this is tied into your coronation essay. Um, the tools that we have to fight off these external factors that shorten our lifespan or our health span, as I like to actually focus on, mm. um, they require us to actually turn the missiles on ourselves. And, and there's, um, that's hard. It's, it, you have to look in the mirror and you have to actually say, oh, what am I doing that is actually contributing to this health problem that's going to require those emergency measures later? Our healthcare system has all these tools for, for, a, you know, for, for defending us against the outside. But what happens whenever it's, um, what happens whenever it's something like obesity or metabolic syndrome? Like these things don't happen overnight, and they require lifestyle change. Like they require you to really change your behaviors in your relationship. With not only lifestyle change. See, this is another fallacy, actually, that let's take obesity, you know, yeah. that, okay, here's something that's your fault. Well, that's true. Obese. That's a good point. Yeah. But it's not actually yeah. like, it's a result of all kinds of things right. that are happening to people, starting with childhood trauma, right? Uh, with being 
immersed in a food, in a, in a de-skilled food culture, in a society that where exercise is something that's separate from life. Like you don't use your body. Um, right. It, I mean, there's so many conditions that lead to obesity that make it very hard to make those lifestyle changes. Like it's not even the word lifestyle as if it were, you know, some fashion statement, how mm-hmm. I'm going to wear blue instead of red. And I'm going to, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is baked into the, into the cake of modern society. And it's not that people can't, you know, heal and make changes, but if, if we limit it to that, yeah. then we're ignoring social conditions that keep people sick and obese. And so it just brings us back to what I was saying earlier. It's wrong yeah. from birth to death. Yeah. Like yeah. What we're looking at here is a wholesale social change. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to, I have to commend you for that, Charles. You're right. It's, it's almost like a pet peeve of my own actually to set it up as if like, Oh, this is something that you did to yourself. Right. I, I, I don't mean to imply that. What I mean to imply is that the factors that are making people the sickest are not those factors like the car crash, like the, right. the horrible knife to your, to your gut that leads to sepsis and all that other stuff. It's, um, it's this illness within our society. It, it is the societal structure, our disconnection with nature, the lack of not even just green space. I don't even like the term green space, like the lack of forests, the lack of ecosystems and our unwillingness to actually see ourselves as a part of the ecosystem, right? So even when people use lifestyle change, you're absolutely right. What, what people think of is, okay, you're going to go to the YMCA every single you know, morning, and you're going to drink your great smoothie afterwards, and you're going to check off the list of things. I have to meditate. I have to cold plunge. I have to sauna. I have to do all my things. I need to make sure I have some time with my daughter because they're going to need me. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to get to sleep early because I need to get nine hours of sleep. And if I do all of those things, then I will be okay. It's like the monk at the top of the mountain. But at some time that hermit needs to come down and also start to, to like reconvene with community. And right now there's nowhere for a person to come down and reconvene with community because the community itself is sick. It's a sickness within the ideology of, of, of how we live our lives and how we, we're lacking this co-creative interconnectedness that actually is required for a healthy ecosystem. So it's, again, it's like the, the I, I remember you've, you've used this um, metaphor before. It's the, it's like cleaning the tank, right? You can make the fish healthy, but if the tank is still dirty, you're going to still end up with a, an unhealthy fish or a dead fish sooner right. rather than later. Um, so I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. So yeah, maybe this can bring us to uh, like maybe our final part of our conversation. I'm not quite wanting to say, okay, so, you know, doctor, what can we do to, to, you know, be healthier and stuff, but maybe it's through your experience and including hospice. Okay. Cause in hospice, the question that you normally ask isn't how can we make these people healthier? Cause they're dying, but there's still something hmm. um, that people learn in those days or weeks that is important that on a soul level we recognize as important and not separate from the same thing that we need to learn in our youth and our, in our health. Like there's mm. something, there's an awakening underway that is visible in every, every arena, including hospice. What have you learned about how to be human 
and therefore how to be healthy, how to be fully alive. What have you learned in your work? And, and take a minute to meditate on it if you want. What, what could you share with us that you've learned in birth and death? Maybe there's a specific story, an encounter that comes to mind. For some reason, um, what came to mind for me was uh, the book Braiding Sweetgrass mm. by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And she uses this word, or she, she has this chapter um, where she talks about the language of um, animism. And in her language, her I think she's Native American, Potawatomi, I believe, and, and in her language, she was trying to learn the language kind of retroactively, right? Like she didn't grow up with it, but she's now trying to learn the language. And she describes how challenging it was to be going from the English language of a subject-object relationship to a language in Potawatomi, whereby you use language um, like to describe a tree, let's say, or... Um, I'm trying to look up the word here right now. She uses the word um, wikegama, which is the word for being a bay. So whenever you're seeing this thing out there in this, this beautiful bay, it's not a bay. It's not a thing for your enjoyment. It's actually you're using a word that is describing the act of being a bay. And I think that the reason that that came to mind is that whether we're giving birth or we're supporting somebody in birth or we're dying, we're supporting somebody in dying or we're anywhere in between, this life that we've been given is not even our life to exploit. It's not just here for us. It's actually here for all of us. Like we are all, and it sounds so cliche, we are all one. And if one of us is, uh, is, is not doing well, if, if, if your neighbor is not doing well, then you are equally not doing well. And if your community is actually healthy and thriving, you are actually he healthy and thriving. It's, it's, this, it's a more sophisticated, sophisticated way to see ourselves on earth. And when you lift up a handful of soil and you see all the microbes in there and you realize, wow, that same handful of soil is is kind of like what you find if you took a handful of junk from your in intestines. Like we're all connected and it's not just me and you, Charles. It's, it's everybody, it's everything, all of the living things. Um, I would even argue that all of the, the mountains, the streams, the rivers, the oceans, like everything is connected into one. And when you realize that, it really changes your perspective as to how to live a good life. And you realize that time is actually not money. Presence is money. Mm -hmm. And being with you right now is, is, a, is a gift. It's a joy. It's, it's something that is not to be taken for granted. Um, the fact that you woke up this morning is a freaking miracle. And I'm so glad you did. And I feel the same way about me. And when I get to see my little girl and she looks straight into my eyes and she says, Dada, like there's something important to this 18-month-old just seeing me and seeing everything as, as alive and well. And I think that if we're going to be good men and women and we're going to be good parents and we're going to be good stewards of our own lives, I think the best thing for us to remember is that if, if we're caring for others, we're caring for ourselves, And if we're caring for ourselves, we're caring for others. And that, that needs to be enough. Um, that needs to be enough for us to just get by and to sit with how great, how great this experience is. 
And I think that uh, to use the soil analogy again, if you're going to do your best to keep yourself healthy, this is like what my whole holistic OBGYN practice is about now is enriching and optimizing the soil, like your being. And it's not just the metrics that we talk about. It's the body, the spirit, the soul, all of those things make up who you are. And if we forget about any of those elements, the, the, the top falls out of balance. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for that. And um, you're welcome. So just curious is out of all of the people that you've worked with um, who are going through the dying process, mm. is there one in particular who made a deep impression on you that you feel that you could maybe share something of that? Yeah, there's one story that I like to tell. Um, there was a gentleman I was caring for in San Diego and I'd gotten to know him very well. Um, he was a poet, he was a pastor, he was, an, he was a painter and he had all of this, he just had some good stories, right? But we failed, like he didn't ever talk about those stories. You could just, you just like gleaned little bits of it, you know, because he was really a present man. He was somebody that you could sit with and just be comfortable sitting in silence. And I was caring for him for many weeks and um, walked into his house one time and his nephew was there and he said, oh, Dr. Riley, you're, you're, you're here. It's so good to see you. You know, my, my uncle, he's been waiting for you. He's so excited to see you. And we just, he and I just had this bond and um, this patient and I, and I walked into the room and I was accompanied by my attending who's like the supervising doc that oversees the fellows. And I walk in and I said, you know, hello there, you know, how, how's it going? And he didn't move. He was just kind of laying on his side and I put my hand on his back and I started rubbing his back. And it's amazing how much just touching a person at the end of life really matters. If anybody out there is ever caring for somebody or the presence of somebody who's dying, um, it's okay to touch them and to love them in that way. And I walked over and I looked at his face and something had changed. And I put my hand on his chest and I didn't feel any chest rise. <laughs> and I, I looked at my attending, you know, in the way that, that you do and communicated to her that I, I think he, I think he just passed away. And the nephew ran in and was like, Oh my God, he was just, like eating pudding, like there's like, what, I can't believe that that happened. And um, sure enough, we like listened to his, to his carotid and there was a, a little faint pulse still and he had just passed away, like just there as I walked in the door. And the first thing the family started doing was trying to call the mortician and get everything together. And um <laughs> Like we, we have the funeral arrangements that like they're doing all that stuff, you know, and, and, um, and I, I just kind of suggested, let's all just take a pause. You know, this is like a special time right now. Let's just be with it. And I was sitting on the bed and I had my hand on his head and I was running my fingers through his hair. And, um, we, his, his sister was also a pastor. She said a prayer for us and we all hugged and then said goodbye. And it was at the very end of my day. And I was like, wow, that was really that was beautiful and that was magical, but I had to go to the hospital to, for an OBGYN call shift. So I go to the hospital, I'm walking into the hospital. I'm like feeling just like, wow, that was really something. And the nurse almost like meets me at the front door and is like, there's a baby coming. We got to have you in the room. Right. And as anybody knows, who's ever been to a vaginal birth, most of the time, the baby, the doctor doesn't have to do anything back to Bradley. 
Dr. Bradley, like you're just catching, I guess. There's not really even a need for a doctor most of the time, but you know, whatever. I'll run in the, in the room and throw some gloves on and like, sure enough, pow, like this baby comes out. And what does everybody do in the room? Everybody starts scuttling around and getting the baby cleaned up and you got to have everything clean. The sheets need to be changed. And like mom's just like, you know, on her own, like LSD trip and the baby's on its own LSD trip. And like, they're like, the whole room is glowing. The dad is just beaming and tearful. And, and meanwhile, the hospital staff is kind of getting some things together and, and, uh, and they put this like cleanly wrapped baby on her chest. And I tell her the story of how I just said goodbye to one of my favorite patients and, and everybody in the room just kind of stopped and was like, wow, there's something really important to that. And, and as a, as a quick little second, second story, if I may, it kind of ties into this. Um, when I was a resident, there was a baby that was born uh, prematurely. It was like 33 weeks, which is about seven weeks before the due date. And, um, in the, the, the labor and delivery suite, the baby comes out and goes onto the warmer and the mom is having some bleeding. So I'm tending to her and the NICU staff, like the pediatricians are all there because the baby's early. So they call in like extra staff and I'm like, what's going on back there? And like, then the, the NICU doctor comes in, like everybody's there. And I kind of, I was like, asked one of my, the assistants, I was like, could you just go and check on, check in on that? And the mom is like, what's, what's going on? You know? And they're like, we're going to have to move the baby to the operating room. We can't, we can't, the baby's not taking breaths. We can't figure out why. So they take the baby back there and we eventually get the mom and the dad over there and they call up pediatric surgeons. They call up HENT docs. Like they call in like all the cavalry. And what it turns out is that this baby was missing a piece of trachea, like a three centimeter (laughs) gap in the trachea. So there's a mouth and a, and an upper airway, but there's no bronch, there's no connection to the bronchi. So I'm talking to this pediatric surgeon who was like one of the greatest doctors I've ever met. And he was like, there, there's, there's nothing we can do. And, uh, so we go in and the mom is they're they're bagging. They have like a, and they've made an incision into the top of the bronchi basically to be able to bag air into the, into the airways. Cause nobody knows what to do. They're waiting for some answer and there's no answer coming. So we deliver this news to this, to the family. And she says, I just want to hold my baby. Mm-hmm. And, so she's holding this little girl as this girl is grasping onto life. And I always get a little bit choked up with this one because I have a, a daughter myself and I have another one coming. And, and the same thing happens. Everybody's just so busy putting instruments away or clicking away on keyboards or adjusting the blood pressure cuff and, and all these things. And eventually she just says like, can you guys just leave us alone? She says it more forcefully and with, more expletive language than I just used. And everybody again stops and just realizes what's happening here. We have a birth and we have a death in the exact same time frame, maybe 20 minutes. And as she holds this baby and this baby just slowly dies, can't breathe without the, the, the incision and the ventilation. And, um, and she and her husband are just blown apart. And our only job at that time was just to hold space for what's happening here in this incredibly important moment of birth and death. And to go back to my patient who I had said goodbye to and this baby that came into the world, these are important things. And these are important moments in our lives. There's a profundity 
to the human experience that goes beyond the reductionist model that you and I have been talking about. And it's so, so important if we're going to heal the world for us to remember just how profound this experience is, not just birth and death, but everything in between. That's my story. Yeah. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Charles. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. So if people want to uh, learn more about you, you have a blog, is that right? It's a, it's my practice website. Um, okay. They're sort of like more in line with, with how, like where I am right now. Um, mm -hmm. I went through a lot of phases of really strong emotions while I was in the system. And I, I kind of want to mm -hmm. create a new, mm -hmm. um, I just want to start the story over, you know? Um, yeah. I'm not upset with the medical system. I'm not upset with doctors and everybody else. I just want people to know that, you know, there's, there's medications and surgery and those things can help sometimes. But I think really we all just want to be treated with love and compassion. And that's the foundation of my, of my holistic OBGYN practice, which, you know, it's belovedholistics.com. Um, I work with people individually. I also have collaborators who are midwives, doulas, birth educators, holistic mm -hmm. health practitioners, um, pretty much anybody out there who's, who's doing anything in the alternative health space or in the allopathic health space that wants some insight from a, a very open-minded, open-hearted physician who um, cares deeply, deeply about you. Mm. Well, thank you. Yes, we'll, we'll put the link in the uh, notes. That'd be great. Yeah. Great. Well, yeah. So wonderful to uh, share this time with you. Yeah. Look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah. I'll see you in Rhode Island, Charles. And again, yeah. not to, not to echo myself, but um, just thank you for doing your thing. I know it's hard to do your thing increasingly. So given the state of affairs and um, your work is more important than, you know, to so many people. So thank you for, thank you for, for what you do. Thanks. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.